Section 11 of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 11. Letters of June 8 and June 16. Lynn Mass, June 8, 19-something. Dear Ted, if the super had come in and told me the hands were going to strike unless I lowered the piecework rates, I wouldn't have been more surprised than I was at your last letter. It was some shock, and at first I couldn't believe you were serious. After re-reading it I see you are, and I guess a few hints from the old man may help relieve the pain a bit, for it's as plain as your Aunt Sarah you're going to suffer, no matter how your love affair turns out. To me the idea of your really being in love seems as impossible as Trotsky being elected alderman by the Beacon Hill ward of Boston. But it doesn't take a specialist to diagnose the symptoms, and from the stuff you have spilled all over the pages of your last letter, I should say you had an acute case with a fever going on a hundred five degrees. Now I say no matter how things turn out it is going to be painful and at your age and vast experience of life, it can only turn out one way, and that's a broken heart for you for about a week, and then a gradual interest in life, until two weeks from now the outcome of the baseball game with Andover will be even more important to you than how to get enough to eat between meals. There's one thing you have done, though, Ted. You've played fair with the old man, and that's entered on the credit side of your ledger although you may not think so when you've finished this letter. I'm glad you introduced me to the girl at the game last Saturday, and I assure you I enjoyed every minute of her society, and would again, for she and I had a lot in common, both of us being practical businessmen. But when it comes to having her for a daughter-in-law, I can think up more reasons for not wanting her than a jobber can for refusing to stock a line of shoes he feels may be out of style before he can unload them on the retailer. In the first place, Ted, I should judge she is slightly older than you. About eight years is my guess, and although eight years is all right when it's on the man's side, it's apt to be pretty awkward when your wife is constantly referred to by strangers as your mother likely to make you feel foolish and the lady peevish and about the time you'll be thinking of changing from tennis to golf she'll be changing from one-piece dresses to wrappers and wrappers never yet kept a man's eyes from straying in other directions miss shepherd is good-looking i'll admit real attractiveness though in spite of the soap advertisements and beauty doctors is more than skin-deep and you must remember that no matter how perfect a surface a thing has it's the quality underneath that counts. After all, there's not much difference between girls and sole leather. A run of leather on the warehouse floor may look like nice profits, and when it's cut you find it didn't figure out at all as you expected, and a girl may look like a June morning before marriage and turn out an equinoctial storm afterwards. A smart shoeman doesn't buy a block of leather without sizing up what's under the grain, and a young man when looking around for steady company can well do likewise. I don't want you to think I have anything against good looks. I haven't, and if you can get them with other qualities, all right. It must be tough to have to sit opposite a face at breakfast that curdles the milk in your coffee. But better that, and sizzling ham and eggs, than a rosebud for looks and cold oatmeal. 
your lady love didn't strike me as a young woman of means and as for your capital it consists principally of some loud clothes and a fair knowledge of football neither being what you might call liquid assets when it comes to setting up housekeeping and speaking of housekeeping do you think she is the kind of girl who would enjoy getting three squares a day running the vacuum cleaner in between with dishwashing and mending as sidelines now hortense may be only six or eight years older than you in wisdom she's nearly twenty and you had better believe she's got no fool ideas about trying to live on three dollars a day with sugar twenty cents a pound no girl who's lived all her life in an academy town is so foolish as that and if you think i'm going to finance you a couple of years from now in a home of your own you're taking off with the wrong foot i know i married when i was only twenty and was getting eighteen dollars a week but your ma is one woman in a million a country town girl who was taught housekeeping from childhood and who could make a dollar go further than even the immortal george when he made his famous throw from deep centre in the potomac league she could take my week's pay on a saturday night after having set aside the rent and insurance money buy enough food for the next week the clothes we needed and still have some left to tuck away in the savings bank and right here let me tell you if you ever make another crack like you did two weeks ago about your ma wearing too many rings i'll give you the worst licking you ever had perhaps she does but she likes em and when i think of the work those fingers have done for us she's welcome to cover em with rings if she likes and her thumbs also for that matter your ma made me and the right girl is the best inspirer of success a young fellow can have while the wrong kind is about as much help to a man trying to shin up the greased pole of success as a nice thick coating of lard on his fingers probably you don't remember john white john and i were great pals when we were boys used to swim play ball and hunt together fought at least one pitched battle a week but when any one touched either of us the other was on the intruder like a wildcat we both got married about the same time and john who was sensible as he could be in most things picked out a girl who hadn't the brains of an intelligent guinea-pig we were both working in clough and spinney's at the time and three months after john was married he had indigestion and was wearing safety pins on his clothes instead of buttons noon hours he used to tell me what a lucky fellow he was to have married priscilla but as the weeks went by his praises seemed to lack the right ring although i must say he did his best i often wondered how he was getting along for in my estimation priscilla brown was pretty much of a lightweight and although a nice enough girl about as useful around a house as one of those iron dogs some folks have on their front lawns one day john invited us over to topsfield where he lived to supper when we got there i thought your ma would have a fit she's as orderly as a west point cadet and there were clothes strewn all over john's parlour and more dust on the furniture than there is in some of the seashore lots the fly-by-night real estate companies sell we waited and waited and then waited some more for our supper finally we had it everything out of a can and cold but the prize performance came when priscilla started to serve jam and bread for dessert she put down beside me a loaf of bread she said she had just baked and asked me to cut it 
I tried. All I had was a knife. What I needed was a chisel. In my efforts to hack through the crust, the loaf slipped off the table and landed like a thousand bricks on my pet corn. I hollered right out and made an enemy of Priscilla for life. After supper, while Priscilla and your ma were doing the dishes, John and I held a funeral in his backyard and buried that loaf of bread beside a stone wall at the rear of the garden. A month later, old Josh Whipple, who was nearsighted, struck it while he was mending John's wall, and before he realized it wasn't a stone, he had slapped it into a hole in the wall with a lot of mortar. It stayed there until the next winter, when the weather finally destroyed it. John had brains and ambition, and was never an enemy of work, but today he is foreman of the making room in a measly little main factory, when he might be running his own, and it was only Priscilla who queered him. Whenever he'd managed to put by a little money, she always needed a new set of furs, or a vacation, or a thousand other things which she got. John never got his factory. After all, I think I'm indebted to Hortense Shepherd for letting you spend most of your allowance on her and clutter up her front porch on spring evenings. You might be spending your time and my money in worse places. I'm not going to forbid you seeing her. What I am going to do is to ask you as man to man, if you don't think it would be fairer to the lady in question, not to propose until you have some visible means of support? Just think of the awful hole you'd be in, if you did, and she called your bluff and said yes. A school widow like Hortense isn't a bad institution after all, for she gives a young man like you a chance to be in love with a nice girl, even if she is old enough to be, let's say, his aunt. I'd ease off gradually there if I were you. I'm sure it wouldn't keep her awake nights if you call only once a week instead of five times for no matter how much you may think she cares, she doesn't, any more than for any nice young fellow, who'll give her candy and flowers and bow her around to the games. After you've gone through school and college, and have been in the factory long enough to have faint glimmers of shoemaking, it'll be time enough to think of getting married. Now I'd spend more time with the queens of history, and less time with those of Exeter. Don't take it too hard, my boy and remember that when the right time and the right girl come along, the old man will be rooting tooth and nail for you to win. Your affectionate father, William Soule. Lynn Mass, June 16th, 19-something. Dear Ted, Well, son, the school year is about over now, and taking it all in all, you haven't done so badly. Of course, that probation mess last winter was not at all to my liking, and I could have survived the shock of a higher average of marks for the year. Still, I think you have given promises of better things to come. When I asked you last Sunday what you intended during this summer vacation, thinking you had planned hanging around home most of the time, I must say I was startled to learn the itinerary you had laid out for yourself. It looks as though you are going to be about as busy as the Prince of Wales was when he was visiting in New York, and he was busier than a one-armed paperhanger with St. Vitus dance. Now, I never believed in bringing you up on the all-work-and-no-play theory, but from the jobs you've set yourself, I should judge you will be working harder at playing this summer than you ever did at anything else. Newport, Narragansett, Magnolia, 
Kennebunkport and Bar Harbor are not exactly the places I should choose to get rested in for a coming year of work, but you are young and maybe you can stand it. Still, I don't want you to make the mistake I did the year of the panic. Nineteen seven was some year for me. Business was so jumpy I never knew when I came home at night whether the next day would bring the sheriff into the factory, or whether I might get a big order that would float me safely over the rocks. By June I had lost thirty pounds and couldn't sleep nights, but the sheriff wore a disappointed look when I met him, and I didn't have to walk on the opposite sidewalk when I passed the company's store in Boston. Your ma had been doing considerable worrying about my being overworked, and when I had pulled things around so that I could breathe again, she suggested a vacation. I agreed, having in my mind a nice, quiet little village on the main coast, where I could lie around in the sun and doze, or go fishing when I felt real rambunctious. Now your ma had just been reading a book called The Invigoration of the Human Mind and Body, by some fellow with a string of letters after his name. Professor Wiseacre claimed that to get a thorough rest a person should spend his vacations in doing exactly the opposite from what he did the rest of the year, and as much as I should like to, I can't quarrel with him about that. But what I am ready to go to the mat with him for was his elaboration of this theory into the fact that if a person kept away from society most of the year, his vacation should be spent in the midst of its giddy whirl. Your ma was thoroughly sold on this idea, although I calculate she didn't have to be persuaded much harder than a shoe jobber does to take a thousand cases at present prices, when he thinks the market is going up. I fell for it. Your ma ordered a lot of sixty-horse-power clothes, and we rented a big cottage at Magnolia. Now, I knew Magnolia was fashionable, but it's on the coast, so I thought that once in a while I could slip away in a dory for a few hours fishing off Norman's Woe, or get over to Gloucester for a chin with some of the captains of the fleet. But I soon found out that I had about as much chance of doing either as a rabbit has of dying of old age in the snake cage at the zoo. The first morning I came down in an old suit and flannel shirt, with a cod line in my pocket, carrying a can full of clams for bait. When your ma saw me she waved me back like a traffic cop, and asked in a hurt tone if I had forgotten we were going to take our meals at the hotel. I had. I never did again. I changed into white flannels and stood around on the hotel piazza after breakfast, saying, Fine morning! Glad to meet you! while your ma renewed her acquaintance with a number of ladies. About eleven I tried to make a break, but learned I was to escort to the beach a crowd of females aged fifteen to seventy-five. I sat on the beach for an hour getting my shoes full of sand, and then it was time to convey the crowd back to the hotel for lunch. Next we went for an auto-ride, stopping at the grill for tea, after which it was time to dress for dinner, and then I had to stick around at a dance until after midnight. I kept this up for two weeks, and the only time I escaped was one rainy day when I managed to dodge the hotel debating society and get in a morning's fishing before it cleared up. In two weeks I was so fed up with changing my clothes and going to the beach and having tea and hanging around dances, I just longed for the peaceful clatter of the making room 
and would have done something desperate if i hadn't met a young doctor who was making a great reputation advising people to do just what they wanted he told me i needed a complete change i didn't put up any argument against that and i sort of hinted the factory would be the most complete change i could think of so he ordered me back to work and charged me a tremendous fee but it was worth it for in two weeks after i had returned i felt rested now i had rather hoped you and i would get a chance to pal around together this summer for you will be away from home quite a lot during the next few years and i want to be a real chum to you ted i never had any use for the father and son business where the old man says why good morning reginald in a sort of a surprised tone as though he suddenly remembers he has a son after all i want to be a real friend of yours in on your good times and ready to lend a hand whenever it's needed in a few years i want to change the firm name from william soul and company to william soul and son and i want it to be more than a change in the firm's name i want it to be a real partnership we'll be glad to have you home again ted even if it's only between trips for you've been missed this year my boy your ma and i aren't as young as we were and there's been many an evening when i've been reading the paper and she's been sewing and neither of our minds on what we were doing for we were thinking of a hulking kid of ours some years from now when you have a boy of your own you'll understand that's why i guess i hoped you'd be at home a lot this summer and that later you and i could take a fishing trip together but i promised you you could do anything within reason this vacation and my word has never been broken we'll expect you thursday your affectionate father william soul p s bully for you ted your letter saying you are going to chuck all the fancy stuff and stay home this summer just came you couldn't have pleased us more and i've cabled old indian joe to save us two weeks in august you and i are going to newfoundland after salmon will we have a good time i'll say so End of section 11. End of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. Recording by Lee Smalley.